What I'm hoping to help us see through this series, this three-week Play Your Part series, is that there is something special happening here. And I don't say that lightly. And it's not about Eric and Geo. It's not about steering committees or, uh, you know, St. Luke's or anything we're doing specifically. It's something Jesus is doing. And it is fresh. And it is new. And it's unexpected. Because uh, we are where all the church planting experts said we should be. We are now where they said we should be at the end of 2017 in terms of our development and the numbers and things like that. And so all of us in leadership and on staff, all we've been trying to do is uh, just ride Jesus's coattails on this and hold on for dear life because none of us can really wrap our heads around uh, why it's happening the way it is uh, or how uh, we are just doing our best to keep up with what Jesus wants to do here inside the loop of Houston. And so I thought we would take three weeks to step back from the normal sermon series that we do and just kind of catch our breath and say, okay, this is where we are right now. And this is why we started this thing. And this is where we are on the journey because I can look out right now and see people, you know, our hosts are pulling out chairs from backstage because we didn't have seating people in the back. And all of us are just, I think our heads are spinning a little bit um, and, and in a good way. But I want us to remember, too, that we are eight months old. We are not an eight-year-old church. We are eight months old. If the story Houston was a person, this would be us. An eight-month-old, adorable, but vulnerable baby. I want us to know that we are... Uh, frequently filling our diaper at the story. We, there, as uh, Pastor Bruce here, uh, my friend Bruce down front told me between services, there will come a day when it's the story's turn to wipe someone else clean. This is our time to just mess ourselves once in a while. And we do that with some regularity around here. We, we, we are uh, crawling, but not yet walking. And, uh, you know, this series is about what's going to happen in the next season of our lives. Everybody knows that when a baby turns that one-year-old mark, that's usually when you see, you know, the pulling up and you begin to take your steps and things like that. That's what's coming next for us. And so how do we as a congregation go from crawling to walking? And what does that mean for each of us in terms of our own part in getting us from crawling to walking? For some of you, that's going to be signing up for one of our amazing teams and giving your heart to that team. Some of you, that's going to be making a financial contribution to the story because in addition to being where we thought we would be in terms of worship attendance and numbers, to be a church this size costs more than we thought we were going to be spending at this point in our journey. And so some of us have financial questions to answer. Some of us are just dealing with the faith questions right now. And that's great. This church is supposed to be for people who aren't sure about Christianity yet. And so some of you are just there. You need to figure out that part. And that's your part to play in this is to wrestle honestly with your questions. And we welcome you. Uh, into that process. But for the last two weeks, we've been talking about who we are and who God says we are and kind of our mission at this place in the world. And so we've been talking about our mission statement a lot. And our mission at the story is to inspire non-religious Houstonians to play their part in the unfolding story of God's love in Jesus Christ. Every word in this statement matters. In the last two weeks, we've been focusing on two of those words in particular, non-religious and unfolding. Those are the words that raise the most questions usually when someone is introduced to our mission statement. Non-religious is there because we believe Jesus came 
to seek out and save those who are far from the religious establishment, those who either by their own will left religion or were shut out of religion. Those are the ones Jesus came to seek out. That's who he told stories to. That's why he did what he did. Not for religious people who think they have it figured out, but for those who are on the outside looking in. So we think if Jesus came to do that, then we as a church should do that as well. And so while 95% of churches, I think, in our world program and preach for people who are already Christians to become better Christians, we are committed to programming and preaching in ways that uh, speak into the lives of those who aren't sure, those who have questions and doubts. So we are here for non-religious Spiritual but not religious, nominally religious, agnostic, um, uncertain, secular type of people, right? That's why we exist. The second word we picked apart last week is the unfolding word. What that means is that the story God is telling in the world is not finished yet. Yes, the tomb was empty, and yes, that was the climax of the story, but there's this great aftermath that's unfolding, and there's something that's at stake in this final chapter of the story God's telling in the world, and it's at stake in your own life and your own personal story with God. Each of you will not be tomorrow where you are today, exactly, in your walk with Jesus or your faith journey. You are not today where you were a year ago. It is a developing story, and it's important that you consistently remind yourself where you are in this story so that you can be sure your story is heading in the right direction with God and you are committing yourself more and more to the things that matter. Today I want to spend three minutes before I get to the heart of the message talking about the things that we go over in our membership classes. If you come on Thursday, you'll get this talk a little more in depth. We're talking about our vision today. And our vision is that by creating Christian cultures that are compelling to secular Houstonians, we will be used by God, used by God to transform lives, uh, heal broken relationships, and impact the city. That's why we think we are here. That's the vision God has placed in our hearts. And to that end, the way we want to get from here to there, to that vision, is by these five core practices. And what we do at the story is we go where the people are. We don't just expect people to come to where we are on Sunday mornings. We will consistently set up events and our presence will be felt in the city through our service opportunities, through things like trivia night, wine tastings, movie night, all the things that we've been doing to get the word out into the city that God loves the people that aren't in church yet. God chooses the people that aren't in church yet. God redeems and restores people who aren't already in church or religious or Bible-thumping Christians. You know, God wants those people every bit as much as God wants people that are already inside the church. We will create compelling, unassuming atmospheres. Our goal when we set up Sunday mornings is for people who are coming here to walk in and think, this doesn't feel like a church at all. And that's the same is true for any meeting or event that we have. We want people who make no assumptions about their religiosity to come and feel right at home, wherever the story is. We want to lead fearless worship and preach thoughtful biblical sermons. That's why we preach on topics 
that matter to everyday people. We want to help people make new friends because Houston, as large and quickly growing as it is, is an incredibly lonely place for about half the population because half the people in Houston moved here from somewhere else. Their high school friends aren't here with them. Their families aren't here with them. Many of them come for jobs or education or whatever. And so helping people connect and make friends is so important. Uh, for their journey uh, with God. And finally, we're going to sacrificially serve the world. We are going to give and serve from our budget and our time as a church beyond what we think we're capable of. That's what sacrifice means. We're going to do more for uh, the kingdom of God outside of these walls than we think we're capable of. Uh, these are our core practices. Some of you may not know we have core values as well. You may have felt these core values implicitly in your experience here, but we've committed ourselves to being an open culture. What that means is that our doors and hearts are open to everyone who will come, regardless of whatever. And it's not because we want to be politically correct or make a statement or anything. It's because we believe Jesus' doors and arms are open to anyone who would come. And who are we to stand in the way of that? So we are an open culture. We've committed ourselves to being a united culture in our diversity, united in our diversity of thought. So there are people here who are as red state, red meat Republicans as you can be. There are people here who are liberals and uh, mourning the loss of the vote this week and we're one family because we agree to disagree on things that aren't essential. We agree on Jesus and that's all that matters here. And everything else, we're gonna be united in our diversity of thought. We've agreed to be honest about our questions and doubts We've agreed that the church is here to be a sacrament. What that means is a living, profound symbol of God's love poured out for the sake of the world. Um, and we've agreed to be sacrificial. These are our core values. Now, this week I was meeting with a group of pastors, like five pastors that I'm in covenant with, and they're all pastoring kind of uh, exciting churches, kind of like the story. And we meet uh, every month, uh, twice a month for breakfast. And they were asking me to describe the culture of the story because they've never been here. They've seen it on Facebook or whatever. And I started going through all this stuff, this corporate languagey stuff that y'all just endured. And they said, and one of them particularly said, that's not what I mean. Uh, what, what I mean is what word comes to mind when you think about the story's culture? How would you describe it to a non-religious person? And I said, uh, well, it's magnetic. And he said, you're going to tell a non-religious person that your church is magnetic. Like, I won't be able to escape its force. Like, whatever I'm <laughs> visiting, he said, that's pretty, that's pretty scary. He said, complete the sentence. He said, complete the sentence. He said, the, church, the story is a church that, and the first thing, I was, I was at a loss, really, and I just wanted to sound Christian. So I said, believes in Jesus. The story is a church that believes in Jesus. And he said, congratulations. You're just like every other church in the world. He said, be more specific. The story is a church that, and I said, well, I think one thing that sets us apart is that we laugh a lot. I said, the story is a church that laughs. And he said, so what, it's like a big joke to you? And I was like, no, it's not about that. He said, what's the word you, you, that comes to mind when you walk in to the story on a Sunday morning? What word comes to the surface of your soul? And I said, without hesitation, I said, it's hope. It's hope, hope, hope is what I feel when I walk in to the church, and it's not intentional. It's not like something we strategized for or we have anyone to thank for, at least not in, you know, people like 
the pastor or the leadership. It's hope. This is a hopeful culture. There is a sense of optimism that just pervades this place, and it's uncommon. And I think a, a, a bystander would say, what in the world do these people have to be so happy about? Maybe it's fake. Maybe it's false. These people are a little too happy. It's a Stepford kind of church, you know, that shouldn't be trusted. What is there to hope so much? And I think the abiding hope that we have and the thing we stake our lives to in this investment we've made in this new church is that Jesus is who he said he was, and therefore we have every reason to believe that no matter how broken my life is, no matter how broken the city of Houston feels sometimes, God is not done with us yet. God's not finished. There's still work to be done. God hasn't given up. There's restoration happening and redemption happening. And we are hopeful because we've seen with our own eyes what the Holy Spirit can bring about in someone's life when they believe. We are a hopeful culture. The definition of hope is the feeling of expectation and the desire for a certain thing to happen. It's a feeling of expectation or a desire for a certain thing to happen. It is foolishness in the eyes of the world. The comedian Louis C.K. says, why in the world would anyone expect anything good to happen at all? That's a secular way of looking at it, but we have found this hope that God is not done. And we list here the noun version of hope, but we at the story see every week that hope can also be a verb. We put it into action. If only for the time we have on Sunday mornings, people are renewed by hope. The story Houston is a church that hopes. I think, I think that's why God planted us here in Houston, because Houston wants to be a hopeful city. I'm still new here, a little over a year, and uh, my first impression of Houston was that it is, a, it is an optimistic place. Houston, Houstonians want to hope in something. And it's because, I think, God wired us for hope, but hope can go wrong. Hope can take us down some other paths that lead to some dark places. Misplaced hope can lead you to a lot of disappointment and despair. Some of you are thinking, I'm going to make a Houston sports joke now. <laughs> but I'm not. I'm just going to say, Kansas City Royals, World Series champions. That's all I'm going to say, and I'm going to leave it there. Can we still be friends? All right. I'm a Houston fan, too. All right. So, um, I'm curious what you've seen and witnessed Houstonians putting their hope in. You see, your hope is like an investment that your soul makes in something. And what I, what I want us to think about today is what kind of a return you're getting on the investment of your hope. The things you're hoping in every day, are they bringing you anything back? Are they yielding you any results? I see Houstonians putting a lot of hope in the promise of success. I think success might be Houston's most problematic idol because the only thing more important to being successful 
uh, in Houston. The only thing more important than that is looking successful <laughs> in Houston. And Houstonians bow to that altar a lot as well. And I'm going to step on toes today, and I do it a lot, so just forgive me and uh, let's be friends. But look, Houston has a little bit of a problem with prosperity, the pursuit of prosperity, and with a little bit of vain glory. So I'm not that preacher that says all prosperity is bad. Um, I don't mind people who want to look nice. But that was my first impression when I moved to Houston, is that that stuff might be a little too important to a lot of Houstonians. The first thing I noticed actually was the size of cars on the roads in Houston. The size and their relative age. Like there's a bunch of new huge cars on the roads in Houston. Every other car is a 2015 Chevy, uh, what is it, a Yukon? What's the Yukon version? Tahoe, it's a Tahoe. Tahoes are everywhere. It looks like a Secret Service convention at the Crate and Barrel half the time. Like, I don't even know, if you drive a black Chevy Tahoe, I don't know how you find your car. Anywhere you go in Houston, every other car is a black Chevy Tahoe, 2015, you know? It's like, and and I, that was the first thing I noticed. A year or more in Houston has taught me that we spend more than half our lives in our cars, so we want to be comfortable. Like, it needs to be a nice car because you might die in it. So that's, you wanna, you wanna go out in style. I get it now, but I've never lived in any other place where it's quite as important to put forth a good impression for um, other people. And I think sometimes that can lead us down some shadowy paths. Sometimes that prosperity-driven, image-drivenness that we have as a city can come with Consequences. Jesus says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And I'm just curious about the state of your soul. I'm wondering about the state of the soul of our city, I suppose. Because there are people in this room right now who are very successful by every metric. Yet you wake up unsure where your hope lies. Every night, I walk my dog. My dog's name is Limp Biscuit, and he is my third child. I love this dog so much. He is uh, 84 by dog years, so y'all get ready to uh, comfort me in my solace because I suppose dogs don't live forever. So it's going to be a rough season for me when I don't have my Limp Biscuit anymore. But for now, he's going strong. We walk three times a day. And every time I walk him at night, um, the same thing happens. And this is what happens. I noticed it the first time I walked him around my neighborhood here in Houston. We take the same route every day. And I walked around this corner. And it's between like 8 and 9 p.m., so it's dark. But I walk around this corner, and there's this car, this large SUV parked on the side of the road. Now, what's sitting next to this uh, place where this car is parked is a big empty lot that's got a fence around it. It's rare. I live right across the street. It's rare in this part of town to see a big empty lot, so I noticed it, just big empty grassy lot. I'm thinking, 
that should be story parking. But anyway, that's what I think a lot. So, uh, so, so, so she's there. Uh, this woman is there uh, outside of her car, maybe mid-50s. Um, and she's standing at the back of her car with her arms folded, leaning against the back of her car. And I walk past her. And I say, I, I think every Texan man should be like some kind of a cowboy gentleman. So I, when there's a little lady in distress, you know, I was like, uh, like ma'am, you okay? And she said, and I swear, in a voice deeper than mine, she said, yeah, you okay? <laughs> <laughs> and Biscuit, Biscuit, my dog, he just loses his mind. He, it is totally against his nature. He's a very chill dog, you know, but he just barks and growls at this woman. And I'm like tugging him along. It's like he's seen a ghost. And I'm thinking, well, maybe she's a ghost. Like, does anyone else see this person? You know, it's so creepy. And so I just pulled him along and went home. The next night, I take Biscuit out, and I walk him around the same corner on the same road. I see the same car next to the same empty lot, the same woman standing in the back of her car, leaning against the car. Just odd. So I walk maybe a little bit further away this time with Biscuit, and Biscuit goes crazy again, just growling and barking and snarling at this woman, and I'm thinking, what in the world is going on? Until I catch a glimpse of three sets of glassy eyes glowing in the darkness under her car. There's three cats under her car eating off cardboard squares, eating food that she obviously has placed there. And I thought to myself, thank God this woman's not a ghost. She's just a cat lady, you know? I can handle cat lady, you know? And so... And so I looked under the car. I said, oh, are those your cats? She goes, no. <laughs> and then I'm thinking, this raises several other questions for me. So I think to myself, maybe this is her land, and she wants cats here so they'll chase off the rodents. That would make sense, right? And so I'm thinking, maybe this is her land. Maybe I can talk to her about the story parking on her land. <laughs> And so I say to her, so is, it, is this your land here? She goes, what land? <laughs> and then I just tugged Biscuit along a little faster and made my way home. The next night, I decided to take my walk a little bit later after she was gone. After 9 o'clock, Biscuit and I walked around the block, and that allowed Biscuit to chase the cats around like he wanted to do in the first place, and it allowed me to not end up dead in the back of a Chevy Tahoe. So the, everybody wins. And so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm walking with him one night. This was a few weeks back, and Biscuit's chasing the cats, just terrorizing these cats and then I hear this engine rev in the block behind me. Room, and I turn around and the lights, high beam lights are coming on. And she's got the lights in my eyes and she comes driving around. This woman knew someone was terrorizing her cats. She was doing surveillance. <laughs> Covert ops to check in on who was messing with her cats. She said, please don't bother the cats. I said, that won't be a problem, <laughs> and I made my way home. Last week, something happened. I was walking Limbiscuit around the block, turned the corner, 
down that same street, saw the same car, the same woman standing on the back of her car, talking this time to a police officer. The police officer, somebody had called him, I guess, on her. And well, there were six cats now, by the way, instead of three. So maybe that had something to do with someone calling her. And I wanted to listen in as best I could without making her angrier at me. And I overheard one part of the conversation. And they were kind of laughing by this point in the conversation. And she said, I just, I just come here and do this because they're like my family. These cats are like my family. And it kind of clicked for me then. You know, I don't know where her real family was. I don't know uh, what circumstances led her to be a cat lady that's like a mobile cat lady person. <laughs> I know it's easy to make fun of people like that. I don't know why she chose cats instead of dogs. That's the greatest mystery in my mind. <laughs> Talk about that another time. But I, I couldn't help but wonder how many of us are just a few bad days away from being in the very same place as her. Not that she did anything wrong to get to that place in her life, but I, I couldn't help thinking that just a few more years or a few more days or whatever of having priorities that don't quite line up, for some of us, we can be judgmental to order all we want, but we might not be that far removed from that level of loneliness, if we're honest. I'm gonna hit you a little closer to home. A couple weeks ago, I was having breakfast with a young man who goes to church here. I was trying to get him to join a team and to make a financial investment in the story. And he was explaining to me why he can't do those things during football season because he is an Aggie football fan. Anybody gonna whoop that? Y'all aren't sure, like, right? what? Let's see what he says next and then we'll do it. All right, so every weekend, this guy and a few of his friends, they follow Aggie football. And not just like on ESPN, they follow the team around. Like if the team's playing in Oxford, they go to Oxford, Florida, Florida, whatever. They go where the Aggie football team goes. And he said, this is why I can't give the church more time during football season. And it costs money to do all this tailgating. You know, they have all these rituals. It's very much like their religion. And he said, this is why I can't uh, give more money either right now. Ask me, you know, after bowl season. And I said, are you sure the Aggies are going to a bowl? Like, um, <laughs> I swear I want y'all to come back next week. I'm just, uh, just messing with you. But I had to ask him. I said, dude, what's, what's your return on investment here? Is Aggie football loving you back? Are you? <laughs> uh, we've got some, some wounded fans in the house today. Uh, what are you getting back from that? What are you going to be able to tell your grandchildren years from now after investing so much time and money in something that 
doesn't really bear any fruit or make any meaning out of life, what are you going to say? You went to a bunch of games? And to him, at first, it was like, I was desecrating a holy temple of his. Like, this was so important to him. But I think after a while, it, it started to sink in a little bit. When I said, do you think that you being at the games affects the outcome at all? Do you think there's ever been a game where if you hadn't been there, the final score would have been different? Um, Y'all okay? Y'all okay with this? Uh, I know I'm in football country, so I'm just saying uh, it's okay to love football. But what's the return on investment when it becomes a higher priority? than something God might be calling us to do in life. What are we getting back from the time and money we are spending? So, does it change the outcome of the games? No, uh, probably not. Would it be a better use of time and money to maybe watch a game at home on ESPN once in a while? Yeah, he said. And then I pushed the envelope a little bit further. I said, is it possible that collegiate athletics in general is corrupt beyond belief? <laughs> and fundamentally immoral. And then he said, that's too far, preacher. That's too far. <laughs> but this guy and so many of us needed something to hope for, and he thought Aggie football was it. But that can only be it for so long. Everyone you know in Houston wakes up in the morning hoping for something. We say people, some people are hopeless. I don't really think there's such a thing as hopelessness because if you wake up hoping for nothing, then nothing is your hope. Some people wake up in the morning and think, I hope no one notices me today. I hope no one asks me to do anything at work today because I'm lost. I hope I can completely fly under the radar. Some people wake up in the morning and think to themselves, I hope I look so good today that everyone notices me. I hope I'm the center of attention. My hunch is that the first thing you wake up in the morning and hope for or think about is the, is the hope of your heart. For too many Houstonians, I think, and this is where I step on my toes, the first thing I think of when I roll out of bed in the morning is where is the coffee? You know what that hope means? That hope means that I am woefully behind on rest, that I am doing too many things for too many people, staying up too late, getting up too early. I have lost the art of Sabbath in my life. I can't keep up with this life without the help of a legal drug and a lot of it. That's some of our hope when we wake up in the morning. Some of you, some Houstonians wake up in the morning and you, you, you hope to have a little bit of time with your kids. Some of you wake up in the morning and you hope you can sneak a few drinks in before coming home from work because you just can't even. <laughs> there are Houstonians that wake up in the morning and the first thing that comes to mind is being alone for a while today so I can look at porn or I can do something that makes me feel good for just a moment. 
and that is hope. It's hope gone wrong. It's misplaced hope. But it's hope nonetheless. What I'm telling you is that the reason your heart wants to hope so much and you will hope for things that are hopeless if you haven't discovered what God wants to do with your life, you will place your hope everywhere else because God wired you to hope in something. God made you this way. The prophet Jeremiah in chapter 29, verses 11, uh, and then I included 13, 12, 13, and 14 in your study guides. Jeremiah says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. They are plans for peace and not disaster. They are plans to give you a future that is filled with hope. Hope is part of God's plan for your life. You're supposed to wake up and hope for something. But your life won't ever really make sense. You will always be scratching and clawing for some semblance of purpose in your life until you orient yourself and your time and your money and your energy around that hope for which you were created. And if you're trying to force other things into that place in your soul, Life is always going to seem a little bit frenetic. You're always going to need a little bit more coffee. You're always going to need a few drinks after work because you're not where God created you to be, fulfilling that purpose that God gives this one precious life. You were created for hope. And when that hope is the center of your life, everything kind of falls into place. Everything starts to mean something more. During these eight months, I've had the great privilege of being all of your uh, pastor, but, but I've had these moments that have been such breakthroughs for me. I have, during the past eight months, held hands with a couple the day their doctor told them that they will never be able to conceive a child of their own. And I have watched them as they process that grief. I've prayed with them as they've gone through it, and they've considered their options for the future. And I've heard their words of hope, even in the midst of such darkness and despair, because when the hope of your heart is in the Lord of your life, then there is nothing that can take your hope away. Even in a dark moment like that, these two amazing people said, our home will be a home for some child. He or she may not come from our womb, but God has given us a home for some child. Even through their tears, there was hope. I sat in the living room at a $10 million home, and I wept with a mother whose prodigal daughter hasn't come home yet. And she holds out hope that one day she'll see her daughter coming back. She keeps the door of her heart wide open for her daughter to return. Why? Because she too was once a prodigal far from God and God waited on her. She came home later than she should have. But when she came home to God, his door was open and he welcomed her home. And so she waits with hope for her prodigal to return home. Over the past eight months, I've shared a beer with a 50-something man who's here today. I shared a beer with him on the day that he found out that the job he loves wouldn't be there for him tomorrow because oil's at $40 a barrel and his veteran salary couldn't be afforded any longer. And he did not want to go home and tell his wife and kids that the future looks different today than it did 
yesterday, and yet as we sat there and talked, he took me through his whole life's story, and he realized how far God had brought him. And when you realize how far God has brought you, it's only logical to assume that God's not done with you yet. And that there is a future. You can't see it yet, but there's a future and a plan. It is a plan for your hope, for your good. And over that beer, in the midst of that dark time, he felt the breakthrough of hope. I've looked into the eyes of dozens of teenagers and college students who feel so overwhelmed by expectations, so flooded with the fear of not living up to their own expectations and their parents' expectations and their friends' expectations, some invisible pressure that just forces itself on them because they have to look good enough and they have to perform well enough and they have to get everything done just right and on time. And their young lives are just not ready for it all. We've been able to stop and pray and say, God's at work here. There's a plan. There's a plan for hope. And there's a plan for good. When I think about all this, it's so clear to me why God planted the story in this city, at this place, and at this moment. The story is a church that hopes, and Houston is a, a city that needs something true and real to hope for. And we hope, and we laugh, and we believe because the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus for us stand as a truth. That Jesus is who he said he was, and because he came, lived, and died, and lived again, we are who Jesus said we were, and our lives have purpose, and our lives have meaning. And this is all that I want to ask you today. I want to ask you to think about the investment your soul is making, the things you're choosing to hope for, and what kind of a return you're getting on those things. And all I want you to consider today The things you're giving your time and money and energy to, are they things that matter? Are they things that will build a legacy of hope for those around you? And yet, I'm asking you to invest. To invest in what God wants to do in your life. To invest your time and money your energy and passion in something that matters and a hope that will love you back. I'm prayerful that you're praying and wrestling about the priorities you've lived with up to now. And I know not all of us have all of that in order. And I'm just praying that in the next season, all of us will set priorities that honor the God who put us here. As we live lives of meaning. Because I will tell you this, if all of this has happened in eight months, all these lives have been transformed in eight months, relationships restored, and a city transformed, imagine what can happen in eight years. Imagine what can happen in 80 years. If the people of the story today invest our lives 
in what God is doing. Imagine what Houston will look like when the culture of hope we've established here, God has established through us here. Imagine when it overflows these four walls and infiltrates the city and suddenly Houston becomes a city that hopes in something real. Imagine what could happen for the kingdom of God, for the people that Jesus came to love. Would you join me for prayer? God, give us the courage to live this hope. We thank you for being our God. We confess we've not always lived as though you were the Lord of our lives. We've given our hope to other things and we've invested in other places and we've never really gotten a return that matches our investment. And God, what we want to do is sow seeds of goodness and hope here in Houston that reach people who have felt far from you for whatever reason. Thank you for this vision, for letting us be a part of it. And I pray for any person here, especially those who are on the fence of faith, who aren't quite sure what they believe, they aren't quite sure if they can trust you. God, I just pray that a wall would fall down and that a new relationship would be forged today. That we would say yes to your glory and goodness. And yes to your grace. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.